Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. We're in a series looking at the meals of Jesus that he had with people because they communicate some of the biggest, deepest truths he communicates. In fact, one theologian said this. He said, Jesus got himself killed because of how he ate with people. That's a real motivation to want to do this series, isn't it? <laughs> Today we're going to look at a meal with Jesus that illustrates something that transformed my life. How I look at Jesus, how I relate to others, how I understand grace and love was one of the most powerful things that God used in my life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a mature Christian. Some of you who were here eight years ago, you may recognize that we did a version of this eight years ago, doing a little bit different today. I hope it helps you as well. Let's jump in and read the story in Luke 7. It says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what, who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner." Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Kind of an indication that something's coming, right? I don't know if I want Jesus to say that to me. He says, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he, gave, he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Feels like a setup coming, right? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can you imagine how incredible that moment must have felt to that woman. It's amazing, isn't it? This text sets up for us several contrasts. The first obvious one is the sinner. This woman, we don't know for sure what she did, but theologians believe she was most likely a prostitute. So imagine you're a sex worker in a hyper-conservative, male-dominated society. She knew she was clearly not acceptable in the religious leader's social circle. But she had the courage to go because she knew Jesus was there. Imagine what it was like to stand before all those men. Maybe your life is too far removed for us to relate to her, so let's, let's get at it this way. Have you ever faced a time in your life where you failed repeatedly and badly enough that you just 
wondered whether you were really acceptable to God? Or maybe you've done, were doing something repeatedly and you knew it was unhealthy, it was wrong, it was hurtful to yourself, someone else you loved, and yet no matter how many times you said you would control yourself and stop that behavior, you just didn't. You kept doing that hurtful thing. And whether you admitted it out loud or just thought it in your head, you were saying, man, I'm not good enough to be worthy to be loved. For some, maybe that even led to, I'm not even good enough to live. That's the sinning woman. Second, there's a contrast of Jesus. This woman is doing something extremely sensuous to him, expressing intimacy in a way that broke all public norms of the day. With her tears wetting her feet, she repeatedly kisses his feet, wipes his feet with her hair, which in that day it was, it was, it was unheard of for a woman to let her hair down in public. That was just too sensuous and too outside of bounds. The third contrast is this really good, successfully, socially prominent hero of the city, Simon the Pharisee. To be a Pharisee, Simon had to get A's in all of his school, all of his classes at the best schools throughout his whole life. He married well. He had the perfect family. He was likely a wealthy businessman. He was the teacher everyone admired and went to for advice. And he was the civic leader everybody wanted to vote for. The Simon contrast, I think, may not be fully related to all of us here, so let's make this even more relatable to us so we can understand how it might apply to us. Do any of you live with performance stress and anxiety? A drivenness to be the best or at least to be good enough? So much so that at times it feels like that drive controls you in unhealthy ways. Like you can never let down, you can never be yourself, you can never rest because being good enough and being successful enough is only as good as the next thing you do. That's Simon. Notice also Simon's rules for life are exclusionary. Don't hang out with sinners, hang out with good people. Don't hang out with losers, hang out with winners. And why does he do that? I think a better question is, why do we often do that? in too many ways. I think it's because one of the innate drives of humanity, of all of us, is this drive to be accepted, to be worthy, to be respected, to be loved, to be good enough. And we all tend to create rules or standards for how we measure ourselves up to whatever good enough is, which is bounded set thinking. And bounded set thinking is like This box. It's like, to be good enough, you have to be inside the box, right? When you're inside the box, that's the music you hear. If you're outside the box, you are bad. To be secure, lovable, worthy, you must be in the box. You must live within your own expectations, your own rules. And because insecurity and not being lovable are found outside of this box. See, Christian or not, we all create our own boxes to define where we stand to make us feel good about ourselves. So for Simon, what he saw was scandalous. If Jesus was a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman she was. This sinning woman is outside the box. Simon has his rules to live by, and she offends his rules. And uh, just to be honest, she may very possibly tempt him at times to break his rules. 
So she's unsafe. In the bounded set world, anything outside the box is evil and dangerous because to be tempted to be outside one's box is to not be acceptable, not be lovable, not be honorable, not be successful as a person. You all make me feel like you're dangerous and evil today. You're outside of my box. That's the reason Simon treats Jesus with less than the customary honor one would treat a house guest with. But Jesus is a highly influential person outside of Simon's box. So Simon is bringing Jesus to his home to either maintain his own power and prestige and standing in the eyes of the people, shoring up his box, making sure he feels good about his box, or he's trying to influence Jesus to get in the box with him. See, bounded set box thinking is often the way we deal with guilt in our world. We deal with our guilt by saying, if I live within the boundaries, the rules, then I'm okay. If I don't, then I'm not. So from this perspective, sin puts me outside the boundaries because it induces guilt and it undermines my sense of worth and my sense of security and me being good enough. So anything outside the box is not just bad and evil, but it goes beyond that. I feel guilty outside the box, and that threatens and is dangerous to my self-perception. And therefore, anyone outside the box or anyone who makes me feel guilty is dangerous. Bounded set box thinking is fear-based thinking. I live in fear that if I am out, then I am unlovable, unacceptable, not worthy, not successful, so I must live within my own set of rules that defines when I know I'm a good enough person. See, bounded set box thinking is in or out thinking. There's nothing in between. It's in or out. So we create our in and out lists, the things that we must have, that we must be like, that we must do to be in. We create the list of sins that place us on the outside and we create the list of sins that aren't so bad that if we do them, we can still be on the inside of our box and feel okay about ourselves. Those things may not be good for us, but they do not threaten our sense of being acceptable and lovable. Essentially, we create our list of idols, that which we worship, that which defines that I am worthy, I am good, I am acceptable, I am lovable. If I do this, I'm okay. If I do that, I'm not. We define what makes me in and out, and we define by our own rules what makes other people in and out. And we fear anything that could tempt us to not be in. But we fear the wrong thing. We're fearing breaking our own rules and falling short of our own expectations. We are fearing the disapproval of others, but we're not fearing God. We're not reverencing God. Not really. American secular culture's response to this guilt um, that comes from violating morality is simply to expand this box and to de- declare things that are immoral as okay. 
But then what happens, and what you see happening in our culture more and more today, is I define this bigger box saying what used to be immoral is now okay, but if you have a different opinion of me, then you're outside of my box, and if you don't fit within this, you're outside of my box. So I get to cancel anybody who disagrees with me. Innate sinful human behavior is the need we have to define a box of what makes us good, acceptable, moral, lovable. It is the solution that most of us live in and live in through religion to try to define ourselves as good enough, as loved. And honestly, that box, all it does is it allows us to favorably compare ourselves to others. We struggle with this in parenting, for instance. We create boxes of kids who are safe and okay for our kids to be friends with and others who are clearly not okay for them to be friends with our kids. Now, certainly there's this truth of who we hang out with is who we will become. And that's a factor, especially in parenting, right? But that truth is often tied into this bounded set box idea thinking and takes, takes the wisdom of what that statement is intended to do far beyond what it should do. See, that statement's intent is to ensure that we have enough healthy relationships and friendships that will encourage us to grow and become healthy. But instead, when that wise statement becomes a box, it becomes a means of excluding people and preventing us from learning to love others like Jesus is calling us to learn to love others and be on his mission. And it further fosters the unchurched unchurched person's criticism that church is judgmental and exclusionary rather than loving. So who are the kids that your kids can't be friends with? Who are the kids that are not welcome at your home? Maybe better yet for all of us, who are your neighbors, co-workers, family members who you just want to stay away from and keep distance from? Bounded set thinking frequently also controls our definitions of success. For example, where you get your education from determines to a certain degree whom you will respect and listen to. Our rules determine a certain neighborhood, a certain home, a certain car we need to drive, sending our kids to a certain school in order for us to be in our definition of what it means to be good and worthy and successful, living up to that definition. And too often those definitions create our comfort zone and anything outside of that we declare not good, not right. Now, it may be a little bit culturally removed from us, but how many of you watch Downton Abbey? It is a great study in bounded set thinking how it creates divides of honorable and dishonorable, acceptable, unacceptable, successful and unsuccessful, and half the plot is written around them wrestling with their rules. And you don't have to be rich or an aristocrat to live in a box. We still all have, all of us have our bounded set thinking today. It just looks a little bit different. The woman with Jesus, she has her box as well. And on an ordinary day, she would never, ever go near the Pharisee's home. She wouldn't associate with the Pharisees because she felt judged by them and she herself judged herself as being outside the box. But on this day, she breaks out of the box 
And the power of this story is it sets up for us an opportunity to understand and what it really, really means to follow Jesus. Instead of a bounded set, Jesus' gospel establishes something that we call a centered set way of life. And we're going to illustrate that throughout the rest of the sermon. Jesus actually illustrates that in this story, but he also explicitly teaches this centered set concept. So we're going to read where he explicitly teaches it, starting in John 3. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, Jesus came to remove the very real moral guilt that innately, that innately makes us all need, feel the need to create this box in order to make us feel good. He removes our need for this box altogether. Jesus came to solve the problem that we can't solve, that we can never even live in our own box, much less all the things outside of our box that we still do. And how does he do that? Let's read on, but this time in 1 John 2. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus removes the need for the box protecting us and how we feel about ourselves by paying the penalty for our sins and being able to remove the guilt and create acceptance in that moment. But did you catch what John says? It says Jesus has taken the sins of the whole world on himself. He takes, he's taken the guilt and punishment of sin upon himself for your past sins, for your present sins, for your future sins. All of it dealt with, done. Well, if that's all that's been done, then what else is there to do? Let's go back to John 3 and continue there. It says, Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, with sin taken care of, the only thing left to save us or condemn us is whether we choose Jesus, whether we follow and orient our lives around him. Jesus actually illustrates going on in the next few verses this centered set idea And it says this, he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Jesus is speaking of himself as the light. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they have done what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Elsewhere, Jesus expands this light metaphor and he says, If our eyes are full of light, looking at, meditating, gazing upon, letting the light into our eyes, then our whole body will be full of light. But if our eyes are dark not looking at the light, looking at the darkness around us, then our body will be full of darkness. So the great good news of the gospel 
is that being loved and accepted is no longer about your moral performance. Therefore, the fear of your sin being exposed before God is an irrational fear because Jesus has already forgiven it, past, present, and future. So why would we ever fear coming into the light? I mean, think about it. How does that change the way you feel about God, about yourself, about life? Whether you are the sinning woman or the upstanding Pharisee, the one and only decision is about your orientation to the light, Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're in the pitch black heathenness of the people in the back of the room or if you're in the front here, very near the light. So all of you in the back, you're going to want to sit in the front next week because we all have the same choice. Exact same choice whether we rightly orient toward the Savior and our Creator or not, whether we fix our eyes on the light of the, word, of the, world, uh, uh, the light of the world, Jesus, and walk towards Him, just take the next step towards Him or not. See, the fascinating part is that the Hebrew and Greek words for repentance actually illustrate this. They mean turning away from something and turning toward what is right and good, the light. Turning from looking at the darkness to looking at Jesus, the light. Repentance is more than just asking forgiveness. That's part of it. But it's actually a spiritual habit we live by every day of our lives. Choosing to orient ourselves, turn and focus our gaze upon Jesus, focusing upon Him so His light penetrates our eyes and our whole being. See, the box kind of life and religion is all about you focus on the rules you've created to establish this box that I define for myself that make me feel worthy, secure, and loved. But the centered set faith calls us to something that is much more personal and relational with Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why we, along with the Bible, emphasize the Holy Spirit so very much. Notice Jesus says in this text, we prefer darkness. So he's talking about the power of sin, but he's, but he's also pointing out the fact that we tend to want to choose to be independent, in control, and self-justify ourselves. We prefer the box that we construct because it makes us feel strong, makes us feel like we're, we're in control, and it helps us self-justify that we are good enough in life like Simon the Pharisee did. Instead, Jesus is inviting us to humbly face our sin and our need to be saved. But who among us likes to admit that we have a need? Who among us likes to admit that we need a Savior? But the truth is that the boxes we create for ourselves, they just make us into hypocrites, and they hide the truth from us. 
And the box leads us, leaves us in darkness because it's based in how we stack up against other people. So we aren't really looking at the light and the goodness of Jesus at all. We are actually looking at other people and their expectations and we're comparing ourselves to other people. We are looking at the darkness around us to make us feel good about how good we are. Here are some ways that I think we see very commonly this box thinking in us. How many of you have ever said, in your, said out loud or maybe just in your head, I'm not good enough to be a Christian? Or maybe you think, okay, I'm a Christian, but I'm not good enough for God to use me and work through me, for his Holy Spirit to do something powerful through me. Those statements are bounded set thinking. You are still trying to define a good enough box for yourself. And Jesus wants to free you from that. Many of us define the box this way. We say, I'm in, I'm okay, because I'm basically good. I do more good than bad. I'm better than most other people. So again, you're not looking at the light. You're actually looking at people who are dark in greater darkness than you and and comparing yourself. See, box thinking is fear-based. It's based on judgmental comparison to make us feel good about ourselves and attempt to resolve our guilt. We are looking at others in a dark world around us to make us feel good, not the light. We're not looking at the light. And your box causes you to not be in right relationship with God, and you're not even in right relationship with others. And it causes you to deny so often what you know is really true, that you are a broken sinful person like all of us are who can't even do what you say is good and right well enough much less what God says is good and right well enough so let's look a little bit more at centered set and how it brings some value to us and how it how it helps us first gospel oriented center set thinking defines how we live full of grace and love It actually frees us to define a healthy concept of extravagant grace that that we can give to others. See, only in a centered set gospel can we truly be non-judgmental people while still holding to the idea that there is good and bad, healthy and unhealthy, best, just okay and not okay and right and wrong. Centered set gospel is what allows the woman to come to Jesus and be justified in right relationship with God while Simon the Pharisee is lost in darkness. Because the woman, even though she's on the fringe of the darkness of society, is looking to Jesus and the light. While Simon, whose moral and social life is much healthier, he's actually a lot closer to being like Jesus, living in more of the light of Jesus, but he's not looking at Jesus at all. He's dancing around this light, enjoying the benefits of healthy morality brings, but he's living in a box and comparing himself to everybody out there who's in the darkness compared to me to make himself feel justified and worthy. Clearly, life is better, isn't it? The closer we come to the light, to being like Jesus morally and relationally. I mean, the more we come into the light, the more warmth and healing and clarity we have, the less stress and anxious anxiety we have, and, and we see things more clearly. Living in the light is safer for us emotionally and relationally. So learning to live morally as God created us to live is still 
a high goal for us, but it no longer forms the basis of who is in and who is out. For example, if we dream of being faithfully and securely loved in marriage for a lifetime, then even if we start out on the far edge of darkness where this woman was, then we are called by the morality of Jesus to learn to be faithful, faithfully, faithful sexually before marriage. See, God's called abstinence outside of marriage is for many good reasons, but one is that the character quality of faithfulness and honoring another person are character muscles that we must build. We just don't turn faithfulness on and off like a switch. It just doesn't work. So if you want a faithful, enduring, lifelong love, God's way is far more likely to get you that. Whereas the world's way of sin and just doing sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, is going to make it much more difficult. Coming into the light, staying focused on the light, leads to goodness in what we really long for. Coming into the light, allowing our sin to be exposed and learning to be more like Jesus always leads to goodness, whether in relationships or work or finances or whatever area of life you can think of. Because moral growth brings goodness to our lives. So we still want character in our lives. But instead of moral performance being tied to our identity and whether we're in the box or not, like it is with bounded set thinking, where we have to do it in order to be at peace and feel good about ourselves and worthy, Jesus' forgiveness allows us to kick the box aside and move toward the light one step at a time while being completely, completely loved and secure right now from wherever you start in relation to the light. See, by focusing our eyes on the light, it gradually fills our whole being and makes growth more attainable. In bounded set thinking, we, we live biblical moral behaviors because we must in order to not feel guilty and not be guilty. So anything that tempts us and challenges us of, uh, in our box of rules, be it an idea, an activity, or a person, is to be feared, and so we must force them to be on the outside and an enemy. Who do you fear that threatens your faith or your good life or your children's faith? See, in centered set thinking, it removes the have to do it because we are already forgiven, not just for the past, but for the future. I mean, how does that make you feel to realize you're forgiven? Not just for the past, not just for the present, but every possible mistake you ever make in the future is already forgiven. I don't know about you, but it makes me feel a whole lot more free to risk. Because even if I do screw up, I am still loved and accepted and don't have to fear rejection from God. So we can keep our eyes focused on the loving gaze of God even as we are failing. And we can get right back up and just take the next step and keep our eyes fixed on Him. Now some of you do church because you have to in order to feel good about yourself, in order for some of you think, in order to be saved. God is inviting you to step out of that box 
And he's wanting you to realize the grace of the faith and the faith of the centered set gospel brings that it is knowing that you get to do church because it's healthy and it's good. See, that's why scripture says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Because we all know this to be true. Bringing sins into the light greatly reduces the temptation's power and leads to healing. And God's call for all of us as the church is to gracefully walk with one another out of darkness into light together, supporting and encouraging one another in that journey. In centered set, there is no longer in and out people. There are just people who need a Savior, like I am in need of a Savior, who need to discover the light of God's love. So it opens the door for all of us to be like Jesus, to eat and drink with sinners and make friends with sinners because we are all forgiven, but not everybody realizes that yet. Second, centered set redefines spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is based on how consistently you stay focused on the light of Jesus, just taking that next step towards the light. No matter how close or how far away you are, it is just keeping that focus. The closer we get, the more our character becomes like Jesus. But character, again, is no longer the primary measure of spiritual, spiritual maturity. It's important, but not the primary measure. Have you ever wondered how someone as messed up as King David in the Old Testament could ever be a hero of the faith? David was an adulterer or murderer. We see dysfunction erupting as his, as his stepbrother rapes his stepsister, and David does nothing about it, resulting in the full brother of the one who was raped killing the stepbrother who raped her, and then eventually that guy rebels against David, and we could go on and on and on. We could talk for the next 20 minutes about all the massive dysfunction in David's life. David was messed up. He wouldn't even qualify to serve on any elder board in a church in America today. And yet, he's a hero of the faith. Why? Because even though David lived in a very dark time morally, he was quick to turn his gaze to the light. And he worked hard to stay focused on the light. And when he fell, when he fell and he got caught in darkness and he was con- confronted, he quickly turned towards the light and repented. And God called him a man after his own heart. See, spiritual maturity has to do with faithfully looking to Jesus and faithfully responding to Jesus more than it has to do with how cleaned up your character is. In Luke 7, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, these are people doing all sorts of great, good God things, religious things. And Jesus replies to them saying this, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. As Jesus lays out this centered set gospel. He's saying, when you compare the person 10 feet away from God's light in terms of moral and relational health, Simon the Pharisee in our story, and the woman washing Jesus' feet who's two miles away from the light of Jesus in such darkness, 
If the one two miles away turns and fixes her gaze on Jesus, she is forgiven, and when she dies, she's going to be welcomed into heaven with open arms and applause. But if the man ten feet away, with all of his superior and moral social health, is standing here, but he never turns to the light, and he just looks past it to those in greater darkness so that he can feel good about his box, then when that person comes to the pearly gates, God will say to him, you broke my heart. I gave you so much. I gave my entire life for you. You knew so much about me, but you never knew me. You never repented. You never fixed your gaze upon me. And therefore, I will have no part of you to hell you go. See, Jesus' love removed the barriers of real guilt and the barriers that we put up. And he's made it easy to be loved and easy to love God. Some of you have been walking with a high degree of moral and relational health. You're close to the light, but you've turned away from Jesus, or maybe you've never turned toward him. How is God inviting you to respond to him today? Some of you have been walking through really significant darkness and brokenness morally and relationally and in other ways, and God is inviting you to just simply turn to him. He's going to meet you right where you are at. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Let him meet you right where you're at. And as you fix your gaze on him and make the direction of your life pointed towards him, there's such goodness coming your way. So how do we walk this out? Well, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? If you need to focus and close your eyes to do that, just take a moment. Say, God, where are you in this today for me? Take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I'll give you a moment. As you're listening to the Lord, uh, maybe ask yourself this. Where do you see yourself? Are you living in a box? Has your faith been one of fear, performance, anxiety, that you're not good enough? God's inviting you to let that go today. I think for some of you, God is inviting you to stretch your comfort zone and befriend someone who's been out with you, to befriend some people you thought needed to be out that you shouldn't associate with. For some, for some of you, I think as you're, as you're meditating on what the Holy Spirit is saying to you, God's coming to you and saying, I'm so pleased with how you focus on me. I'm so pleased with how you keep your gaze fixed on me, how quickly you turn to me you need to. And he just wants to affirm you. and He wants you to bask in that for a moment. Scott, go ahead. 
earlier while Ross was talking about the box. And, um, and I sense, uh, even in the pit of my stomach, that there's someone here that is so walled up in a box that uh, you can't simply just kick it aside because it seems too high. Maybe what you're dealing with is too deep. And so you, see, you feel stuck in this box. And uh, I think the exhortation on us that you are sharing is, is spot on, that it takes a step of faith in order to let the Holy Spirit work in and through you. And so I would just encourage you, if that's, if that's you, and it might not just be one person, and you can sense it in your stomach, you can sense it in your mind, that you're just uncomfortable with uh, your circumstances. I would just encourage you that uh, the Holy Spirit today would have you take a step, not out of the box, but through the box, because it's man-made. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.